Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. It's International Women's Day today, so we're going to be celebrating women in film. I'm Floss, and I'm joined by three lovely human beings, Shivani, who listeners will know from previous shows, Herbie and Alex. Who are all of you? Herbie, we'll start with you. Well, um, as we've established, my name is Herbie. Um, I love talking about film. I love watching film. And um, I think women in film are such an interesting topic, like seeing what they like the history of it both in front of and behind the screen is such an important thing to talk about especially given um, recent developments as well thank you Hermie how about you Shivani well I'm really interested in uh, historic figures of women in history portrayed in film and uh, I really enjoying looking forward to talking about it thank you Shivani Alex how about you well I've only just started getting into film and like watching it critically but I think women in film is an interesting topic to discuss and I definitely think they're underrepresented. So I'm excited to discuss it with you guys here today. I'm also quite excited to discuss it because during my time doing film studies at uni, I was quite disappointed at the lack of any attention to women um, behind and in front of the camera and their contributions. Um, so we're going to cut to a little two-minute history of some of the milestones and historical achievements of women in film leading to what it is now. In 1896, Alice Guy Blachet is the world's first female director. She makes The Fairy of the Cabbages, arguably the first ever narrative film. In 1919, Mary Pickford joins forces with Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith and Douglas Fairbanks to form United Artists. She was also the first actress to sign a million-dollar contract. In 1930, Frances Marion becomes the first woman to win an Oscar for screenwriting. In 1938, Dorothy Arzner becomes the first female director of the Directors Guild of America. She was also the inventor of what is now known as the boom microphone and the crane. In 1943, Olivia de Havilland sues Warner Brothers over contractual disputes. The ensuing case essentially resulted in the liberation of performers from the studio system. In 1945, Virginia Van Upp becomes Vice President at Columbia Pictures. And in 1977, Lena Wertmuller becomes the Academy's first female Best Director nominee for Seven Beauties. In 1980, Sherry Lansing becomes the first woman to head a major studio. She is followed by Dawn Steele at Columbia in 1987. In 1999, Julia Roberts earns $20 million for Erin Brockovich, an unprecedented sum for an actress. And in 2002, Martha Coolidge is the first female president of the Directors Guild of America. In 2010, Catherine Bigelow becomes the first and only woman to win an Oscar for directing. And in 2017, the Me Too movement gains traction after widespread allegations against Harvey Weinstein emerge. Well, who knows if that was actually two minutes long, but I hope there was something interesting in there that you may not have known. Uh, So we're going to dive right into the discussion. And the first thing we're going to talk about is stories about women, female protagonists, iconic female stories that have been told through cinema. Who has something to say about this? Has anyone got like a favourite female figure on film? 
Uh, well, I have a film that I have just recently re-watched that I watched a long time ago and it really, really did make an impact on me. It's a film called Agora with Rachel Weisz um, and it's the story of Hypatia in um, the Library of Alexandria in 30, no, not 30, 391 AD. So this is like major spoilers for the film, but it's been out for a while. So the story of Hypatia, she was a Greek philosopher in the time of when sort of the Romans were starting to become Christian and, you know, the Christians were taken over and monotheism was the way and paganism was not very popular. She played around with the sort of alignment of space. So she, okay, she was one of the first to establish that the earth moved around the sun, not the other way around. And also that the earth moved in an elliptical kind of ellipsis shape as opposed to a circular, which they thought the circle was a perfect form that only the gods could create. Mm. So it kind of lends itself to the idea that she is an atheist in a time of very religious men uh, going around. And uh, unfortunately, she then gets stoned to death for being an atheist and for um, being a witch, essentially, because they didn't really know what she was talking about, even though she was a very, very powerful woman, I think. Wow. Sorry. (laughs) That's really (laughs) interesting. Yeah, Yeah, no, it sounds really good, actually. When was that released? Do you know? Yes, it was released in 2009. um, 7.2 IMDb and 53% of Rotten Tomatoes. So, Critically, it was it's a decent film, not you know amazing, but I I really really love the story. I know that you're a big fan of that era and mythology and yeah, stuff like that. Do 100%. you feel like it appealed to you because of that? Most likely, and I, I've always been interested in the whole the whole issue surrounding the Library of Alexandria, which is just it saddens me. Yeah. To this I mean, it's day. a unique story for yeah. a female protagonist as well. Yeah, like um, all most of like all the other characters in the film are male, so it's just one woman. And she she goes through advances of of men, and she's just basically essentially asexual. I think the most of the film, yeah. but um, yeah, it's a really really powerful film. I recommend it. Do you think it was sort of the intention of the writers and directors to go against that trope that the woman needs a man, particularly in this film? I think so, and I think it they were trying to keep to the history because if they gave her a love interest, it wouldn't have added anything. And the whole point of the film is that she is alone and she dies alone and it's very sad um yeah this is a very very interesting story not a lot of people know about it so it's 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 good thanks for that shivani has anyone got anything else i mean i think coming from my upbringing i never really took notice of when women were in films as Mm -hmm. you know as a lot of young boys don't they like to see i mean I, i wasn't quite like all action sort of teenage boy but um i think it was when i started university that i really started to notice and appreciate the, the the stories that are about women like um I remember in my first year of university I went to see loads of films at the local cinema including like Suffragette and Hidden Figures I went to see as well which are two very important stories about historical women I mean which I know obviously Shivani is such a fan of as, as one <laughs> I should seen be seen both of those yeah I do like those films and I remember when I was watching Suffragette at the end a um, middle-aged woman turned around from front of me and she said it's it's good to see some boys watching this and I think that made me really sort of really think about how important these stories are and how unwatched they are by the male gender as well because we so often see like people talking about children not wanting to like watch things with boys in if they're girls and the other way around Mm -hmm. and that's 
the boundaries are breaking certainly today, but it's something we still need to continue looking at. And I think after watching that and after hearing that comment from the um, other customer who was watching the film, like um, the other member of the public, it sort of made me consider these stories from women because suffragette is such an important story in history as well. And it was fairly accurately told from what I've seen. Like, you're never going to get something that's 100% real because that's a documentary. And even then, all the different perspectives, you'll never get something that's real. But the stories about the women and the struggles they went through was very real. Like, their individual stories, even though a lot of them were fictionalised, it's about their struggle and seeing how they, the, like, the steps they took to get the vote and what that meant to them. I've been thinking a lot about the double standard in that films about boys are kind of for everyone. Like everyone goes to see Lord of the Rings, everyone goes to see all the all the superhero films which are very male driven. Um but stories about girls are kind of seen as being for exclusively girls. Like I didn't meet many men who went to see Little Women because it's all about girls and girl things and it's a sad thing. There's a lot being missed out and a lot of conversations not happening because half of it is seen as not for them. It's interesting as well because I, when I was looking around and doing some research for this, I started to notice that if you go and you know you look through like, let's say, film lists of female protagonists, let's say 70% of these films have the word girl or woman in the title. And you can, if you start to think about it, so many of these films, part of their marketing ploy is that it features a woman or like a female lead you don't really get many original stories that don't have to mention the fact that there's a woman playing the role like gone girl yeah or um wonder woman wonder woman little Little women Women. (laughs) like it goes on and on it's really quite crazy actually yeah and quite a few have just the woman's title as the title like amelie like anna karen and they're like um, emma emma erin brockovich Mm. yeah it's weird and also i've noticed with female directors a lot of the time, for films like Wonder Woman, they'll bring in a woman to direct it, which is good because you need that perspective. But I've noticed not many women get to just direct a film that is about something else. A lot of the times when they're given the opportunity to put their voice to something, it's still exclusively about the female experience somehow. Like, could a woman have made Parasite? Probably, but would she be able to in the industry? Maybe not. I think the industry still feels like picking women for these roles is a risk deep down that's the only thing that that would make sense to me obviously it's all about money for these studios and the last thing that they're going to want to do is take these risks so it's really sad yeah definitely when you come across those things but then you do have things like ladybird and booksmart where two amazing female absolutely fantastic yeah made two really fantastic films um you know and hopefully they sort of change the public opinion of that sort of thing and if they make the money, the studios know that they can put their faith in women to, to do these things. I mean, when Wonder Woman came out, I was consciously like, I have to go and see this because if it doesn't make money, it will be portrayed that it didn't make money because it was a girl's film and people aren't interested in seeing it. There have been so many flops, so many dreadful like straight-to-video like man-driven action films where the stakes are so much lower. Like They just get given so many more chances to exist. And I really want that to change. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) To be fair, Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel were both received very, very well. And the the chances thing is an interesting thing. So I remember seeing um, when A Wrinkle in Time came out, um, directed by Ava Devaney, that was um, poorly received both... I mean, it it didn't even receive particularly poor reviews. Um, It was mixed reception and it didn't do too well at the box office. And the amount of articles that came out saying, should she be, you know, should she really be directing another film after directing a critical flop? And then you look at someone like Ridley Scott, 
who every other film he makes is, I mean, from poor to terrible at this point. Like, he's had a really mixed career. But he keeps on giving being given that money to make these films. Whereas Ava DuVarney, after one poor film, after making... I mean, her previous film was exceptional. It was Oscar-nominated. Selma? It was Selma, yes, indeed. Mm. I couldn't quite remember the title. And then, you know, loads of articles about her not being allowed to make another film after one poor, poorly received one. Yeah. Well, also, like now, Birds of Prey is not setting the box office on fire and it's considered a flop and, like, you know, doom and gloom for Harley Quinn's future. Yeah, exactly. Such a shame because it's, it's actually a really good film in the way that they present women. You know, they don't dance around anything they accept that there's tropes there and they just make a really good film out of it with an with an almost all-female cast as well you know that's not really done is it especially for an action film like you could look at uh ghostbusters yeah the modern remake which critically didn't do that bad but i had a look at the audience score on rotten tomatoes and it's something like 50 percent, which is so unfair because I mean, a lot of that's due to expect. I mean, actually, a lot is being generous. Some of it is due to the fact it's got the Ghostbusters title because it's a it's a Paul Feig film, Paul Feig, Paul Feig film with like the Ghostbusters title instead of being a Ghost Ghostbusters film made by him, mm-hmm. which I think is what a lot of people fell down on. But even then, like it was vicious. The critical, like the public reception Definitely, to that, yeah. And it's a, a perfectly fun film. So the Ocean's Eight. Yeah, the female remake. Um, those think those oceans films were amazing. They were like I really enjoyed those, and I wasn't a fan of Oceans Eight just because it was. It, I don't think it was very well made. I don't think it was because women were the protagonists. No, but it unfortunately just it it didn't really sit well as a film. And and every failure is then used by the media as an excuse to say, "Oh, women, women, in, yeah, weapon." Yeah. That's a really good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's not really good. The term is really good. I'd like to make that clear. Um, but it is. It's it's used against female filmmakers and, I mean, anyone, any fem- any women in film. And then that budget then doesn't go back to to making these great films that yeah, feature like, women. Like, you, women. like you were saying earlier, it's, it's seen as a risk then. Yeah, shocking. We've cracked it. We've cracked the code. <laughs> <We have. laughs> I was actually looking at um, Blue is the Warmest Colour as well. Blue is the oh, Warmest Colour. Yeah. It's an amazing film. Uh, it's, it's a fairly original plot. It's just really nicely done. But... We've- no, carry no on. go on, Shivani. After you, well, I was just thinking of the favourite as well. Oh, what a film! Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, but I was looking into the history of the director for Blue Is the Warmest Colour, who I can't pronounce his name at all, so I'm, I'm not going to try. Oh, I'll give it a go. Abdilent Kachish, I think, is maybe his name. <laughs> um, and he was recently accused of sexual harassment by an unnamed French accent, French actress. So even when that's even when something may on the outside look like it's you know doing a great job presenting women. Apparently not, you know. I was going to just add one more thing, which is this, you know, baby steps the industry is making. I'd love for us to be able to move move past where the selling point is the fact that it's a woman. Like, Ocean's 8, it's the ocean stuff, but with women, or yeah. Ghostbusters, but with women. It's like remake, but with women. It shouldn't be such a novelty. It's like, oh, here's half the population finally represented that's why like um films like ladybird book smart little women they were all much more impactful um than just women remaking films that men had already made i'd never really understood that trope or 
idea. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's capitalism's fault with its brand recognition. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so I'll sort of move things on a little bit, but before we do, just a quick fire. Do you remember the first time you saw a movie that changed your perspective on women in film? Kill Bill, volume one. Nice. It was amazing. And I think it still is amazing. I actually think Tarantino does a really good job with putting women into roles where they're not just women in all of his films. I like that she wears a tracksuit. Yeah, it's it's so cool. (laughs) Tracksuit's amazing. (laughs) Giovanni? Uh, I think it would have to be Agora because like the more I think about it, I watched it a very long time ago and it stayed with me since then. So I think, yeah, Agora. Uh, I mean, obviously I mentioned Suffragette earlier, but I think looking back, probably Alien when I first watched mm. that because yeah. I mean yeah, definitely. Ripley is still used as like one of like the um the four most examples of a strong female character in all senses of the word. Don't you feel like it's a bit of a shame though because Ridley Scott still sexualizes her in that film. Just that scene with her walking around in her underwear is completely unnecessary. <laughs> I haven't seen Alien in a long while. No? I don't know. I don't oh, remember well, that scene. I mean I, I don't think I ever saw that as a particularly sexual scene. Oh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> but then the intention and um, the delivery of that intention is, is different for everyone. Mm. Just because I saw it a different way to you doesn't mean it wasn't what Ridley Scott intended. I suppose. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. I'm now struggling to think of anything. <laughs> I'll say maybe like some of the Studio Ghibli films, um, Princess Mononoke has some great female characters in. And I remember that one. I got really obsessed with that film when I was young because she was so cool. She was like a wolf. She wasn't sexy. (laughs) She got to do stuff. Um, So we'll move on to stories by women. So I guess mainly women directors. Does anyone have a favourite female director? Herbie? I mean, I don't want to be cliche, but Greta Gerwig for sure. Yeah, she's good. She's very good. She is excellent like the way she um crafts her stories and the way she builds her characters is i mean some of the best i've ever seen genuinely yeah because i think especially her debut of um ladybird was such a personal story to her like seeing her build a film around where she grew up obviously influenced by her upbringing by her childhood without explicitly being so Saoirse Ronan's character of Lady Bird is such an interesting young woman to witness growing up on screen because it is a coming-of-age story. And even though it's only about such a short space of time, you can see so much of what makes her who she is from the way she was brought up from her family to where she lives, like um, towards the end of the film, just seeing her reminisce about where she grew up, where she's from, and not realising the impact it has on her. Like, I'm a very nostalgic person as well. I love seeing nostalgia in film and the way, like, the past influences our present. And um, that's very similar in... Little Women as well with the time jump which is um, from the original story of course but from the way we see how the events of seven years ago in their lives affects their future affects their present and affects everything about their own characters as well Thank you That was very well put Shivani. Okay, so with with the risk of sound, of potentially sounding controversial here I was thinking about this the other day of all my favourite directors and Unfortunately, they're all they're all male, and I don't think that's because women aren't making good films, or um, there's not enough women making films. Maybe maybe there isn't enough women making films, but I don't I, I don't really know what it is, with the exception of Greta Gerwig, because 
amazing, amazing films. I would watch Lady Bird today, actually. It was really still powerful. It did make me cry, though. The first time I watched it, it made me cry. I've seen it like six times and it makes me cry every single time. (laughs) (laughs) You're a stronger man than me. There's nothing wrong with that, though. That's the thing. Like, all my favourite directors probably are male because the kind of genre I'm interested in, there just hasn't, unfortunately, they've not been allowed a space at that table yet. Like, I'm sure there's a woman somewhere that could make a Christopher Nolan-type film, but it just hasn't happened yet. One of my favourites is Guillermo del Toro. That's how you say it. Um, And obviously Pan's Labyrinth, his protagonist is a a young young girl, and that film was amazing. It's, It's so... It, it's very powerful and it's very visually amazing. But obviously it's still a male director and I don't think there's anything wrong with men directing films about women. Um, of course there's not anything wrong with that. Um, but the men, male directors outweigh female directors, unfortunately. I think that's just the way it is. Well, sorry. <laughs> I had a statistic. Oh. 8% of directors as of 2019. That is how many? It's actually wow. higher, a, num- a num- higher number than I thought it would be, really? to be honest with you. Because I was going to say what you were going to say. I literally it's really I don't difficult. think I have a favourite female director. I just, think it, I just think not enough women have been given the opportunity, or not enough female directors have been given the, given the opportunity to form signature things that they'll take with them through other films, you know? Like yeah. you could watch a Wes Anderson and know it's a Wes Anderson. Mm. But a lot of these female directors, they have like one or two films in their catalogue and they haven't been given the opportunity to really expand. But I do think Olivia Wilde, if she oh, can, yeah. you know, keep up with something like Booksmart, I just thought was really incredible. And I would love to see more from her like that, you know. Yeah, she's actually in the process of making new films. I heard um, that she got signed. Yeah. yeah, I saw her saying on Twitter that she's been given a script and it's incredible, which is obviously what a lot of directors have to say. You're not going to say, I'm directing this film and the script is terrible. But it's um, <laughs> after Booksmart, I'm really interested to see what she does next. Definitely. You can see as well that there's like a positive reinforcement to this whole thing now where there wasn't before because she has so much heat around her and her directing abilities. I haven't heard that from any other female directors. And she's the first person, I think, to really have so much going on for her. Yeah. Um, I'd chuck in Lynn Ramsey. I think she's really good. We Need to Talk About Kevin was another one. I mean, it's quite a dark film to have as one of your like formulative cinema experiences, but it was uh, for me and also, You Were Never Really Here is another great one. Um, maybe she doesn't get the attention she should. She, has she ever been nominated for anything? I don't... I'm not sh- Best director? I don't think so. Anyway, um, she should. Craig's looking at me like I've said something wrong. <laughs> um, we're going to move on to women in other industry roles. So, for example, cinematography, costume design, editing, makeup and hairstyling, which is pretty dominated by women. It's the only category that they dominate. And also production. There's some strong production women that's not a good phrase <laughs> kathleen kennedy hate her or love her she she has an empire and her record speaks for itself doesn't it looking at the film she's been involved in yeah and also margot robbie has got her own production company uh, which is doing some cool stuff there's a lot of editors doing some great work whose names we don't hear very often. I'd say the most famous is Thelma Machinemaker because she works with martin scorsese but other editors well for example Christopher Nolan's Memento was edited by Dodie Dawn. I think editing plays a lot into how the final product comes out because all the pacing, like, it's all structured by the editing. So I'd say they share quite a lot of the responsibility for the final product. Mad Max Fury Road was edited by Margaret Sixel. Uh, Verna Fields edited Jaws. And all the films of Richard Linklater were edited by a woman. Um, There was a lot of 
really cool work that I never even knew was edited by a woman. Um, yeah, Star Wars was a huge one for me. That's kind of yeah. the only one I'm really massively informed on. Herbie, what's the name of the editor? Uh, Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's wife. And she basically cleaned up the first three original Star Wars films. Yeah, she had you such can, a huge role in how they turned out. Yeah, like you can go and find footage of the original Star Wars before she took over the editing and there's some like really absolutely terrible content in that film, like horrible, horrible scenes and horrible, horrible characters that were going to be kept in. And she really saved that whole trilogy. I mean, and that's really how the prequels happened because um, they divorced, I think, in the early 90s or late 80s. Oh. And yeah, and she um, obviously wouldn't do, isn't going to do any more of his films. And George Lucas, I mean, a lot of the prequels are defined by how people say, he surrounds himself with yes men, people who would just say yeah to all his ideas because I think he's a good story person. But basically all of his other filmmaking talents are not there. He didn't have anyone to filter out. No, mm-hmm. whereas... Um, exactly. Who could have been a good idea <laughs> with the right execution. Once again, like the, the playful child-like character in the film to, you know, get the children engaged. There, as was, much as anything. A, there was just too much of him. Well, yeah. Editing would have helped. Exactly, and um, you can like like Alex was saying, you can see what, the original Star Wars. Some of the ideas which are like condensed and compressed into smaller ones, and a lot of that is down to her and her work in cutting the films into something that is actually logical and makes sense. Absolutely. Although I must disagree about the Jar Jar Binks thing, <laughs> and I think that he should have just been cut completely from the entire. <laughs> I didn't. I never got what everyone hated about him. I he just... was like. I, I, I quite liked the prequels, and that's very controversial, but it's, I liked it in a morbid curiosity kind of way. You kind of, you go from the original trilogy to the prequels, and the, the drop in quality and the change in tone is so obvious at that point. That's what makes them hilarious. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> they're funny, yeah. But like, what the, Judge of Binks was just a ridiculous idea from the start. Um, I'm going to move us on, unless anyone has any other... Sally Menke, who edited a lot of Tarantino films before her um, death in 2010, and it's quite a shame there because I think her absence was noted more than her presence because um, when Hateful Eight came out, a lot of people were saying the editing was really unusual. It was There were a lot of very long takes in there and the pacing. I really enjoy The Hateful Eight, but it's such a slow film and I think it's one which is so unlike the rest of Tarantino's films, which are so snappy, which are so sharp in their transitions and the way in which they're like, visually represented and a lot of people have cited her her death and her absence from the rest of his films as being a part of that and I think that's quite sad in a way that she wasn't really noted until she was gone as being such an important role in the way Tarantino's films turned out. Thanks Herbie, I didn't know that, it's really cool. Uh, We're going to move quickly on to cinematographers. So like as of now there's only ever been one woman nominated for cinematography and that was Rachel Morrison which you, you might know her from Black Panther um, and also Mudbound, and she's kind of leading the pack in that sense. Also, A Quiet Place, I thought was a beautiful film, and was also shot by a lady. Does anyone else have anything to say? Or shall we move on to some of the other roles? I, I think move on to the other roles, because honestly, I mean, that's a problem in itself that I can't say much more about female cinematographers, because I just don't know any. I actually found it really difficult to find decent females for cinematographers. Yeah, none spring to mind. It's a shame. It's a a real shame. It's a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of like really good films, but just not enough. Um, I wanted to say something about costume design, talking about Mad Max again. Does anyone remember at the Oscars when, uh, what's her name, Jenny 
Jenny Beaven, Jenny Bevan. She won for costume design and she was wearing like jeans and a leather jacket. And it was such a great rejection of this idea that you have to show up to the Oscars in a dress and look really feminine. And also the fact that it was from Mad Max, which was a pretty good film for women. Exactly, yeah. That's like one of my milestones that I remember in that she just did not give a damn. <laughs> um, what else? Makeup and hairstyling, I kind of don't really have much to say. You you said earlier that it's, it's quite a dominated um, sort of industry, I suppose, by women, um, which is interesting con- considering the other categories haven't been. Well, it's not that surprising because it's the one corner of the industry that's about making things look pretty. Okay, I mm, see again with the with the um, risk of being controversial. The reason there are more women in makeup and hairstyling is that because more women are interested in makeup and hairstyling than there are men. No, I think women just aren't afforded the same opportunities as men in so those fields. So they're shoved into the quieter sort of. Oh, you can do the makeup and hairstyling, and a lot of people get their roles that way. I remember. Um, very niche actress Katie McGrath she started doing like um being involved in like costume design on the Tudors and she'd done some acting work and that's how she got into acting on a bigger stage as mm-hmm. well so I mean it's 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 one that can lead to opportunities but it's such a small place and it is one where I think people are shoved off into definitely oh it's also you know in a broader sense from a young age girls are funneled into paying more attention to makeup and clothing and hairstyling than boys so it's automatically something they have more experience in as they get older i think as well the stigma kind of goes there's stigma on both sides exactly because you know men are taught not to show emotion and like army stuff and all that kind of things and so like you know (laughs) if i wanted to grow up and i did want to be a costume designer you'd have some pushback against that yeah but it would be i still believe it'd be easier for me to do that than it would be for a woman to break into other sides of the industry and also it's quite it's quite unfair of me to say that the oh, women are only in makeup and hairstyling because they're like forced into it because they don't want to do it i'm sure there are a huge number of women who are do it because they are exceptional at their jobs absolutely but I, you can see it as well it is sort of one where like floss was saying with, with the way that we're brought up as well it's just one that's expected i think as well i don't want to go as far as calling it brainwashing but i was definitely against the norm as a kid in that I was not into anything female oriented hated everything pink hated everything like princessy I struggled growing up finding female role models in films and behind the scenes in films because there just weren't really any speaking to what I was interested in hearing yeah I was having a, a similar conversation with someone and it kind of we were talking about what men and women are interested in in terms of like career and job opportunities um and it sort of became apparent that women would typically this is a this is a generalization but typically would choose jobs um that are more like people orientated so there's more like uh, social interaction and men would pick jobs that are more sort of object or thing orientated so uh, that was a study that I read and I cannot remember where I read it but I kind of think I think it's down to the male stigma as well though just because I mean it's something that I can only really truly relate to that side of things because I've been raised that way but you know I was always under the impression that it's hard for me to show how I really feel around other guys and around girls because it leaves a bad mark and I'll damage like a reputation or whatever that I might be wanted to keep. 
It's about brawn rather than <coughs> sensitivity. Yeah, and that's just because it's I'd be judged for being sensitive, or at least I would assume that I'd be judged for being sensitive. Yes. I think it's the assumption that's the killer, isn't it? Yeah, because we don't know until we say, but we're so scared of saying, and that applies to a lot of people in general as well, not just. And then we just we propagate that by having that attitude. We just make it worse. Because, so it's a never-ending circle. Yeah, we but don't it's think so sad because think about how many men have got sensitive and insightful stories to tell, and they've never been able to tell them because they think they're weak for wanting to say them. Yeah. I think we should move on to the issues bit because we're kind of getting into it already. Can we've, I just briefly yeah. mention a director that I found that I really liked? Yes, yes, of course. Her name's Dorothy Arzner, or. Yeah, Arzner, I think. Has anyone heard of her? I think she comes up in my timeline. Okay. She's like a, a she was like a golden age Hollywood director, but she was the only female director in Hollywood between 1927 and 1943. God. The only female director That's in Hollywood. So cool. And every single film that she produced or, and directed, she had a say in, she would change the screenplay. She would make sure that women were properly represented. So there was a film called Craig's Wife, which was about a woman. <laughs> it's about Craig's was, wife. <laughs> it's about Craig's wife. It was about a, a woman who was obsessed with the upkeep of her home and her husband's problems with that. He's like uh, him having a hard time dealing with the fact that she's so obsessed with keeping her home as clean as possible. That was the play. And when she took that and turned it to a film, she made it about women wanting to find, or this woman in particular, wanting to find her own identity uh, as a woman, as a person, instead of her just being a housewife. So she completely took Craig's wife, turned into something that was really strong and powerful for women. And she did that, you know, in the early 1900s, which I think is quite amazing. Very early in filmmaking as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was also the first female director to direct a sound film. What a hero. Yeah. I suppose I should bring up the... Um, the first ever woman to direct a film who I talked about in my timeline. So it was, where is it? Where have I written it? 1896. Her name was Alice Guy. She was definitely the first woman to direct a film and possibly the first person at all to make a narrative film. But she got divorced and that ruined her career and she faded into obscurity. I never learned about her at uni. Um, yeah, she was like blacklisted in Hollywood because she got divorced. And she was the first female director. Yeah. But she committed atrocious sin. <laughs> Isn't that sad? It's shocking. So under the issues kind of topic, stuff like the male gaze, Bond girls using women as a motivator in films, like your wife dies, your mother dies, your girlfriend is kidnapped. Is that a really tired way of motivating your male heroes to do stuff? And I don't know, you had some stuff to say about Captain Marvel. We'll get onto that, won't we? Oh, yes. What, what do you want to tackle first? <laughs> I mean, uh, moving on to another superhero film, the male gaze in Wonder Woman, oh, or yes. the lack of, should we say, compared to how um, Diana is represented in Justice League. You go from Patty Jenkins directing to uh, Zack Snyder slash Joss Whedon. And the progression, the difference, uh, progression is such a horrible word because it's not a progression <laughs> at all. Regression. A vicious regression. It's such a startling like dichotomy between the two films. All the women on um, the island, their costumes somehow seem to get less from one film to the next. They do, and they weren't too much to begin with because that's the nature of where they live like yeah. you can, there's a genuine reason in in text for doing it and that's the difference between sexualized costumes and non-sexualized costumes that they're very practical they're a warrior race of people isn't it funny that when joss whedon was starting out he was viewed as this really feminist 
guy. Like heroes like Buffy were really forward thinking and it's just become clear that the world has moved on and he never did and he still makes jokes out of like, oh, your face is on my boobs. I mean, I think someone, I saw someone on Twitter point out, I think three separate occasions that's happened in his films. One is too many. Yeah. He ruined Black Widow in Age of Ultron. He did, yes. I mean, whatever you say, whether the revelation that she couldn't have children was intentional with her statement of I'm a monster, it's completely tone deaf to to put those two, like, statements next to each other from Um, the same character and and think people wouldn't see them as being linked because, yeah. Yeah. It was really out. Of, it's just disappointing in a way that the only female team member has to have her big grievances. I can't have kids. Yeah, she's like, done yeah, other they things. Just not and done that. She's had a very rough life. Yeah, like she could have been. I really hate that I've killed so many people. <laughs> I mean, you could be sad about that. But no, no, no children for <laughs> Natasha. What a what a travesty. Can we talk about Disney for a second? Of yes. course, we can always talk okay, about Disney. I think I think this is a, you're a big Disney fan, Herbie. No, no it's just going to be mandated thinking in the next twenty years when they buy our thoughts as well as all the <laughs> online streaming surfaces. I think it's forty percent of all media that we consume oh, is now owned by Disney. God, that's crazy, sick, huge number. But um, just the idea that you can look at almost every old Disney film and you can see how they've planted this idea in young girls' heads that this is what they need in order to be happy in life. Like, the formula for a lot of old Disney films is uh, daughter or woman betrays her family or, the you know, her family has an idea and she says, I don't want to be a part of that, I want to be an individual, which is such a great start. Yeah. And then this woman will immediately encounter a man who she then feels like she needs in order to feel fulfilled. So there's, like, Little Mermaid does that. Um, I mean, I think The Little Mermaid is such a good film, but... It's amazing, it's, but it still gives that impression to It's perhaps the worst example girls. of it as well, isn't it? Yeah, like She really literally bad. gives up her voice so <laughs> she can be with a pretty man she saw. Yeah, and it starts off so well because, you know, at the start she just wants to get out of the sea and it's so nice and it could have been, you know, the plot could have gone somewhere else and still been a fantastic film, but they decided to throw a guy in there and then the entire plot begins to revolve around him. Same thing for Hercules, same thing for Aladdin, like, all the, although Aladdin, you know... It's sort of the other way around, maybe. A little bit. Yeah. But Jasmine doesn't get to do anything. She just gets to walk around and say, I hate my life. And she's the only female character in the film, possibly, like of any substance. I mean, one, yeah. of, her, one of her birds may have been female. It's in like her, by her fountain. But... <laughs> I mean, there's a, a brief scene in a brothel. Oh, yeah, God. You go. <laughs> but it's like you were saying earlier, what was the phrase that you used? Um, we look at men's actions and we look at what women are yeah we so we perceive when we watch films all the like male protagonists we tend to look at what they do and then female protagonists we look at what they are and normally what they are is really sexy <laughs> yeah and that's sorry about... no, i said that a little bit too enthusiastically. <laughs> yeah so um i didn't love wonder woman women woman woman wonder woman um i'm was determined I was going to watch it and give it a chance. I, it started so well, but I just didn't like how at the end it became about her romance with a man and all the stuff that really got to me. Like I cried when the, the army of women came over the hill on horses. I was like, I've never seen anything like this on screen before. And then in the end, she left the revolutionary part, which was the island for the women, and went into a world where lots of men went, oh, but you're a woman and you're 
walking around like a free person making decisions and i was like this isn't very new or interesting no i think i was about to sort of disagree then but like you said it's not new and interesting it's representative of a time certainly especially seeing etta candy's character and how she reacts to diana yeah but then do you think that was intentional do you think they were just trying to tick all boxes by doing something like that or maybe i mean i just i would have found it very interesting to see more about how the war was and how she dealt with the war rather than pining over Chris Pine. Pining of the pine. Yeah. Pining of the pine, yes. But, you know, again, it's another film that unfortunately makes its way back to revolving around Because it, it's, it's got to fit into that established stereotype, hasn't it? I mean, I'm not saying that as I want it to, but it, it has to be made. Like, I mean, a lot of that film was about compromise, between, I think, what the what Patty Jenkins wanted, what the filmmakers wanted, and what they thought would sell well. Like, it was originally going to be set in World War Two. Like, the plot lends itself so much better to World War Two, with them, like, demonising the German forces when World War One was such a political mess of a, yeah. of a war. You can't treat any one, like, armed forces in that film, any one country, as the bad guy, whereas the Second World War, there's much more of an argument for it. But I've seen a lot of people suggest that the reason it was changed to World War One was out of convenience because um, Captain America was set during World War Two and they couldn't do the same thing. Yeah. Which is a lot about, like, especially that, like the final act is very Zack Snydery because he had a lot of creative control in the oh, DC yeah. universe. The ending was so dull. It was just a big CGI fight. Like, it, it could have been so much better in terms of, like, subverting expectations and making Diana realise that, what is happening is not because of any controllable force. It's just what happens. Yeah. I think that's just modern Hollywood, though, isn't it? It's like you said, it's a compromise between yeah. what the studio wants. And Creative the... decisions and money. Yeah, exactly. I thought Captain Marvel, I didn't, I mean, it wasn't a particularly exciting film, but I liked that she didn't have a love interest. It felt so refreshing, didn't it? It was like... really weird. I was like, I keep waiting for the other she to drop and for some random man to walk over the screen and then they fall in love. I mean, she's clearly being set up with Valkyrie, but... Well, one can hope, Herbie. We can hope. I was going to talk about Frozen, because when Frozen came out, it was championed as this really great, like, feminist victory, because there's a line where Elsa's like, you can't marry someone you just met, and everyone's like, oh my god, you can't? Um, But despite that, I think there's only about four women in the whole film... And that, to me, is still just as much of a problem. Because where are they all? Like, they exist. Why aren't they doing things and speaking lines? I suppose it's a step forward, though, isn't it? In terms of, like, that's a Disney film, and then you look at the other ones that we were just talking about. At least, at least... At least. There is some kind of, like, accurate, you know, representation for... I don't think a film has to be completely female-dominated, though, to... to... Oh, I don't want dominance, Shivani. I just want it to be half and half, no. like the real world. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree, but I don't think... Like focusing on the ratio between men and women, I think is 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 not what I would focus on. It's 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 more what the women in the film actually achieve. I'm no, I'm disagreeing because they don't have to achieve anything remarkable. Like not all men in films are doing remarkable things, but at least they're there. And I think I, there's a problem with just not having any women in the background doing stuff. I disagree. I think. I think presence isn't enough. Just because there's more women doesn't make it more feminist. I think the problem is more there's not enough original plot lines for women that don't revolve around 
the same themes that we've seen for like 70 years now. Yeah, but if we like if we take films like Ladybird, there is there's a fairly equal split, I think, um male and female, which is what you're you're striving for. Um but it it doesn't completely exclude either. I I, I don't want it to exclude either. It's just well in the world of Frozen, where are all the women? What are they doing? The fact that they're not there means that someone made a choice to not put them in or just it was so low on their list of thoughts they didn't think to put any in. It was like they chose the two main characters and then they were like, yeah, that's it. that'll do. Shove yeah. those ones in. I mean, maybe I need to rewatch Frozen, but... I mean, the the protagonists are... So we've got Elsa and Anna and then... The, uh, de- the dead mum. <laughs> well, no, but be like the main protagonist and be... Sven, the the reindeer, Sven, the reindeer. <laughs> and then and other Christoph, man. yeah, um, and Olaf, and Olaf is arguably just the comic relief. Um, so you you've really you've got four characters there, and two are women and two are men. I'm not talking about main character Shivani. I mean, just in the world, in the world that they're in. Or do you? But in the in the in in the subject of okay, Frozen, I'll it's change a, the film, The Lion King. Okay. So there's Nala, the love interest. There's Simba's mum. I think Nala's mum makes an appearance briefly. That's that's based on Hamlet. Yeah, but they changed it to be about lions. They can change (laughs) other stuff as well, can't they? I think Disney's going to be the hardest company to come around to stuff like this because this is what they sell. You know, this they've been making money off of the same storyline for so long and they make so much money doing this it's going to take a lot for them to change their ways. I think Frozen was certainly a step in the right direction Absolutely, looking at yeah. some of the films they've come out then. I think Lilo and Stitch did it better. That's that great sooner. I have in not seen Lilo and Stitch. Wow. You've not seen Lilo and Stitch, uh, Herbie? So tell me about Lilo and Stitch, Ross. <laughs> well, just in terms of having, you know, the parents aren't around, one sister's got to step up, there's some stuff going down, but it's just slightly more... I don't know. I think it's a better relationship and a better film. It's a much more human story than and Frozen. She goes to a dance class and there's like 10 girls there. <laughs> but also, Lilo could have been a guy and yeah. it wouldn't have affected the film in any way. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah, hmm. definitely. I'm trying to find another one of my stats. Uh, so, I think this was from my 2019 stats. 82% of films had 10 plus male characters and speaking roles only 35% of films had 10 plus female characters I'm not asking for one to dominate the other I just want more of an equal playing field because there's an equal number of men and women in the world why does the screen not reflect the same thing do you think that's down to writing I think it's yeah it's perpetuation of what there's always been to the point where lots of people don't think about it I think in a way Disney's tried to swing too hard away from female stories because I think they think they've made all oh, we've made all these princess films in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Like a lot of their films now seem to be more about male stories. And then you see a lot about saying, well, boys need role models too, which they do, of course. But I feel like they're, they're swinging too much the other way because I was just trying to think of other Disney and Pixar films that come out since. And Wreck-It Ralph was my first one because, I mean, it's not, it's more. It's, it's as much Vanellope's story as Wreck-It Ralph's story. And then past that, I can't think of too many often at the top of my head. Like Coco is Coco very is much a, a male story. Yeah. It's, it's a good one, but it's very much a male story, isn't it? Like, yeah. there are very few female characters in that film, other than Coco's grandmother, who 
once again, is arguably one of the most important characters in the film, as she is called Coco. I can only think of two, though. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What about um, Moana? Oh. I haven't seen Moana. I love Moana. I've only seen a little bit, but I can tell you that it does follow... The bit that I saw at the... I've seen about 20 minutes at the start follows that Disney formula of daughter doesn't want to be part of what the family wants and tries to leave. But then um, the family accepts that and joins her, which I think is something we don't see in the rest of the films. Like, she influences an entire people. Nice. You just spoiled Moana for me. I haven't spoiled (laughs) Moana for you, because you don't know what she's inspired them to do, so... (laughs) Um, um, obviously we haven't seen it yet but the trailer for the new Milan film obviously yeah. in the original she has a love interest and that's that's fine um, but I don't actually know if they're going to do a love interest in this one and also the the antagonist seems to be a woman as well which is interesting because the whole idea is that she's a woman in war who's not meant to be there um, but you've got the antagonist sort of making that a precedent which I wonder how they're going to play that but i don't believe there is going to be a love interest i don't think there is either and i think the um like the sorceress character on the other side is like in conjunction with the leader of the huns who is no longer who isn't the same character i think as in the original animated mulan as well so they're changing a lot about it which is going to be interesting to see as well i suppose if it's a bad film for other reasons they'll pick those ones to blame it on (laughs) they always do I've got some random scribblings, um, things that bother me. I don't know what all your thoughts are on this, but women's existence on screen is always kind of conditional on them looking good, despite what they might be doing. Like It bothers me to no end in Guardians of the Galaxy when I see Gamora running and she's got these massive blocky heels worked into her boots and I'm like yeah. why would you do that? Jurassic um, World was Jurassic pretty awful World. for that. Heels are a big one. Scarlet, Scarlett Johansson. Black Widow is always wearing heels of some form. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard's character is, is, yeah, not very good in Jurassic World because, I mean, there's a point in the film where she's talking to her sister and they're talking about children and she doesn't want children. Her sister's like, oh, you will, you know, you'll know when you have them as if it's every woman's job to have children. And she's given that love interest (laughs) of Chris Pratt as well and, like, out of nowhere... And she then does end up having that maternal instinct for her nephews. Yeah. And she runs in heels and away from a T Rex who was supposedly running I mean, like thirty hero, miles an hour. But completely unrealistic. I don't you just take them off. Like so much yeah. easier to run barefoot. I mean you might just get like hobbit feet in the end, but you know. But I'd rather have hobbit feet than get eaten by a dinosaur. I, it's I like hobbit have teeth to agree with you. Or T Rex teeth in the back. Yeah. I said hobbit, hobbit teeth. <laughs> hobbit feet or T-Rex teeth in oh. the back. So I've also made a note about Eponine in the film version of Les Mis. I don't know how many of you have seen it. So she's supposed to... I loved in the book how she was just a mess. She was supposed to be like this ugly, like insane person. In the film, they've put Samantha Box in this tiny corset. Her eyebrows are immaculate. She's got lovely like apple cheeks. She's supposed to be starving and living on the streets. And at one point, she's supposed to possibly appear as a boy. And I don't know why they did that to her, other than she's got to be a viable... They've got the love triangle. She's got to look good. It's weird because there's so many... Like, there's such a market for proper representation. And I don't understand why, like, Hollywood doesn't want to take these risks and just do it properly. I mean, Hollywood, in its very nature, does not take risks at the moment anyway. I I can think of very few films that have really gone out there. Like, thinking of women-led films, 
you've got Atomic Blonde, which came out a few years ago, which was seen as like all this original like spy story. And I thought it was an excellent film, very well made, very interesting in how it was made. But it didn't make any money. Which is why launching right back to the beginning, you've you've got these like female led films that use existing IPs because studios see them as being able to make make money whilst also appearing diverse at the same time. Exactly, because it's all about appearances for them. Mm. Um, so I was going to talk about Chicken Run earlier. Oh, I'm I so think, excited for this. I just think Chicken Run is a, a deeply feminist film, <laughs> um, and it's one of the. I didn't realise until I got older, like, oh, this is... Obviously, they can't sexualise them because they're chickens. Like, they'd have to try really hard to make a sexy chicken. <laughs> and, like, there's, they all are, they're all so different. <laughs> all their personalities are so diverse. You've got a really good hero in Ginger. And it's not like there's not men in it. There are men in it. Also, the villain is a woman, too. And she's, like, calculating and really clever. Um, and I... Yeah, there were there weren't many films like that when I was growing up. A lot of the men are supporting the female characters as well. Yeah, but yeah. They've, they've got their own little plots going. Yeah, they've, on. You've, you can see their own history. They're all very they're very well rounded. I think from um, is it Fowler, the old male chicken, yeah. and like his history and like when it turns out what's what he's really done, and how throughout the film he's used for his expertise for his like knowledge to help everyone escape. And then you've got the the little rats. They're cool. Oh, I forgot Some about the rats. Cool comedy sidekicks. Um, but the, at the end of the day, like all the all the chickens are women, except from the two men chickens, and that's so rare. And they get stuff done. They I do escape. get stuff done. Spoilers. Mm. They don't get made into pies. I really want to watch Chicken Run. Yeah, I think I need to watch it again. Who all, doesn't want to watch, watch Chicken, chicken Run? run. <laughs> Great soundtrack. Amazing soundtrack. <laughs> That's what we were listening to in America when someone drove into the back of our car. <laughs> the chicken run soundtrack. <laughs> Does anyone else have any like things that bother them about women in films? Honestly, we could be here all night if we if we keep on um, going on. I think we mentioned Bond girls earlier, like the the disposable woman. Like, there's a new brand for every film. <laughs> it's also a huge amount of sexual harassment. In the old James Bond films, 100%. almost like every a, single time, I think it goes on. beyond sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just want to talk about Catherine Bigelow really quickly because she's a good example of she makes films and she's a woman, but they're not films for women or always about women. And she is the only woman ever to win Best Director. But I'd say it was, and I love The Hurt Locker, but it's quite like a manly film. It's quite a masculine, you know, it's war and there's bombs and. It's the desert, they're all doing manly stuff. A lot of the film is about masculinity as well. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it's about like this this one soldier's experience, how he relates what he's doing to his own life. It was like my favourite film of that year. I was really happy when it won. But do you think if she'd made a film about women at war, it would have got the same attention? No. Definitely <laughs> not. Yeah, so I don't think so either. <laughs> Much more negative attention. Yeah. What else has she done? Uh, she did Zero Dark Thirty. Didn't she do Point Break? Like the back in the nineties. I'm getting blank looks, so now I'm going to have to check. That's the a 80s crazy or 90s resume film. for a, for a female director. Yeah, it's amazing. So I think if she had told like a a female soldier story within her film, it should have been immediately dismissed as just being like, oh well, another woman trying to tell a woman's story, trying to have it all. Would she have even gotten that far? No, I don't think so. I think because you're telling this story about a male soldier 
it instantly becomes more marketable because it's it's seen as not trying to play off a gimmick. Like it's it's got it had got to. I mean, it still is at the point where women in film is a gimmick. Mm. I feel like that's the problem in itself. Though. Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot that addresses it though. And I know this is a film review podcast, but there's a lot of TV shows that I can think of that do address that, which is interesting. I feel like maybe women are given more of a chance on TV to experiment because the stakes are a bit lower. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And maybe from that we'll get some good new voices coming into the industry. I mean, from the top of my head, I have just finished, as it was recommended to me, The Marvellous Mrs Maisel, which um, focuses on a female comedian. And it's it's really good. It's not trying to be, like, breaking boundaries or anything, but the nature of it being set in the 60s and a woman not being a housewife is really interesting and the, it's written really well as well. So I'd recommend that. Heard good things. Well, just briefly going back to the Bond Girl thing and thinking of female writers, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is one of the writers or the sole writer for the new James Bond. Which we've just heard has got pushed back seven pushed months. Pushed back seven months, yes. Coronavirus. Wash your hands. And as a result, I've never seen a Bond film. That's a confession for today. But... Because Anna de Armas is in it, who is a wonderful actress as oh, well. from Knives Out. From Knives Out, from Blade Runner 2049, where she was horribly sexualised as well, but that's uh, a separate issue. <laughs> I mean, it's a linked issue, but it's an issue in itself. So it'll be quite interesting to see. There's been a lot of talk about like James Bond going woke, as there would be in this current climate. So it'll be interesting to see how this Bond girl, as it were, is treated by a female writer. Isn't it a shame that any step you take to try and even the scales is met with this like vitriol of get woke, go broke? Oh, um, God, it's awful, isn't it? <laughs> why are you trying to take stuff away from men? Just let us have our I every franchise ever. Men have had it all their way for the last several thousand years. I think it's time for women to get their time in the spotlight for a bit as well, to be honest. And I, I just want to share. I don't want it I don't want us to take away anything it would just be nice to all be at the table together what a polite what a polite response so there was a so just Brie Larson got all that hate and then recently she was a guest host on one of those US talk shows and she wore a low cut top and all the comments were like finally she's made it worth being cast and that was so disappointing it's like everything she's ever done or ever said reduced down to oh she's got Nice boobs. And all the backlash about what she said was based off an incomplete headline. They were like, all the headlines were like, Brie Larson said white men shouldn't review films anymore. And it's like, that's, that's, not, that's not what she said at all. My, um, my last scribbling that I was going to bring up is about the Oscars. Because we just had them and there were no female nominees in the directing branch in a year when there really could have been. There was a good case for quite a few so then I was looking at stats. 2019, in non-gendered categories, there were only 25% of the nominees were women. What would happen if you brought in like gendered directing categories in the same way that you have acting? I think you'd be further separating the two and you'd be making the problem worse. In terms of numbers as well, like if you look at the list of current female directors... Because of the lack of opportunity, there's just nowhere near as many women who are who are allowed the opportunity to make the kind of films that men are as well. Do you think it would force people to watch more female films, yes. female directed films? 
Yeah, I think it would. 100%. Like, Parasite's almost, like been selling out because it's one best picture. So the, that opportunity for a female director would be amazing. I'm going to sort of wrap it up. Um, any last recommendations of stuff that you think people should see? Contact with Jodie Foster. It's amazing. It's an incredible film. It's written by Carl Sagan, and it's about a SETI engineer. And there is a romantic subplot, but it doesn't take away from the film at all. It's really fantastic. Herbie? Uh, Annihilation would be my uh, oh, choice. good choice. Because that got a lot of attention when it was cast as well, with, like, women as scientists. Woo. What's that going to be like? And the film itself, like, the way they interact, the way they talk, is, like, it's so much more important than the events that are going on. Because I love, I love sci-fi. I love what's going on. I love all the plot and the way it surprises you. But it's so much about Natalie Portman's character and her journey and her development mm. in in conjunction with these other women. Thanks for your recommendations, guys. Um, I'll just say today I watched True History of the Kelly Gang and that has such a great performance um, from Essie Davis as Ned's mum. She's like a powerhouse um, and she's really complex. I should qualify, though, despite that film's really good, but the only women in it are his mum, his sister, his love interest, and prostitutes. So it, it doesn't meet all the standards one would hope for. Really good film, though. Complex female character. Sometimes that's enough. So we're going to go to an ad now uh, for our Patreon, and we'll see you in a second. interrupt this broadcast or visit Worth It the Film Review Podcast for an important announcement. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would like to remind you that you can now become a Patreon supporter for as little as $3 a month. This helps the podcast to continue to grow as well as offering the potential for bonus content and Is It Worth It merchandise. Your support helps the podcast stay alive. So why not become a Patreon supporter today? Head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash Is It Worth It Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this special episode. If you've enjoyed listening and would like to hear more like this, why not become a Patreon supporter? As a supporter, you'll be helping the podcast to grow and you'll get exclusive perks, which Craig is busy behind the scenes getting set up as we speak. Another great way of supporting the show would be to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a lovely review. Only if you've enjoyed the show, though. Don't bother otherwise. No, but we do appreciate your thoughts and feedback and you can email the show on mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com Or you can message your team on various social media accounts. Just go to isitworthitpodcast.com and you can go and find the links there. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more very soon. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>